Last week on the Business of Bees, we went all in on the European honeybee. They don't give a care for anything in the world other than collecting nectar from flowers. We traced the journey of Apis mellifera from Asia to Europe and then North America. There's a good saying that said the honeybees did better than the settlers did. And we hear the unlikely tale of a Presbyterian minister who invented the modern beehive. He would just observe them. He would literally sit for hours and hours and hours. But those same traits that made honeybees perfect for agriculture also make them vulnerable. It's that jump in species where things get really crazy. From Washington, D.C., you're listening to The Business of Bees, a podcast from Bloomberg Environment. I'm Adam Allington. And I'm Tiffany Stecker. So, Tiffany, back in episode one, you and I talked about all the ways that beekeeping has evolved from this niche economy, which basically made one product, honey, into one that produces all these different products like pollination, cosmetics, and mead. And don't forget all of the R&D going into new beekeeping technology, as well as tons of science and research about pollinators broadly. Well, in this episode, we're going to take a step back for a moment and focus just on the connections between bees and agriculture. That makes sense. I mean... The increased use of bees to pollinate crops is what's driving the growth, whether you're talking about boosting yields or increasing availability of specialty crops. Like melons, blueberries, coffee, almonds. Or almonds, as they say in the Central Valley of California. So I noticed that you use almond and almond interchangeably. What's your choice? My choice is almond, but I'm talking to some people interviewing me, so I'm going to say almond for uh, the general audience. So last February, you and I took a trip out to California almond country, which is the crop most heavily dependent on bees for pollination. And while we were there, you spoke with this guy, Mike Doherty. So Mike is an almond farmer from Calusa County, north of Sacramento. He farms 800 acres for Blue Diamond, the world's largest grower cooperative. If you've ever bought almonds at the grocery or convenience store, there's a good chance they're from Blue Diamond. In recent years, Mike says the cost of renting commercial beehives to pollinate his trees has grown so much that it's now one of his largest costs. Generally speaking, I would say it's approaching a quarter of our total costs for uh, 1,500 hives. So let me work this out here. 1,500 hives times $200 per, that's $300,000 just for bees. That's right. And it also means that as a beekeeper, your biggest job every year also comes at a time February, when most honeybees are still hunkered down for winter. Which means farmers like Mike try really hard to maintain that supply chain, often bringing in hives from as far away as Texas, Florida, even North Dakota. I will forward pay my beekeepers sometimes because approaching 80% of their income is derived from the almond crop. And in some beekeepers, it could be even higher than that. And I, I don't know about you, if, I, if you received 80% of your income in February and March, boy, by December, I'd be... Uh, kind of running a little lean. And that's a time of year when I need them to be taking care of their bees. I need them to be feeding them. I need them to be doctoring them for if they have a mite issue. Because I want strong bees come February, March. Are you concerned at all that there won't be as many bees in the future? Oh, of course. But I'm also worried there won't be enough water in the future. There won't be enough employees in the future. The farmer worries every day. I get up in the morning worrying. I go to bed worrying. That's what we do. So that's what the farmer, who needs all these bees for his crop, is up against. But now let's hear from the supply side, the beekeepers, and what their concerns are. 
One of the thousand or so beekeepers making the annual trip to California is a tall, white-haired guy from North Dakota. My name's John Miller. I keep honeybees for a living. I'm generation number four. I now work for generation number five, my son, Jason. You may remember John from episode one. Every year, he ships about 13,000 hives to California. Just a tiny fraction of some two million hives, about 80% of all commercial hives, that are needed just to pollinate almonds. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth in history. There's just nothing else like it anywhere in the world. This particular almond orchard is in Modesto, sort of right smack in the middle of the Central Valley. As we walk into the orchard, John lights a small scrap of burlap and stuffs it in a bellow, which he then hands to Tiffany. My job is to puff the smoke into the beehive. Smoke stuns the bees and makes them less likely to attack when you open up a hive. Keep puffing, it'll go out. Can we crack open a hive? Yeah. When we look into this hive, we see thousands of orange and brown worker bees. With so much pollen and nectar to forage on, John says a healthy hive can produce upwards of 50 pounds of honey. How much of this honey actually will go for people to eat? None. All this honey goes right back into the hive as feed. But as lucrative as pollination services has been for beekeepers, John says it's also come at the cost of much more work and risk than 15 years back. We've had near ruin in this business. I'm wearing one of our old uh, shirts today. It's the Total Global Domination Tour of 2012. It was the year our outfit collapsed and it was like this near-death economic experience. And what happened? Our eyes died. That near-death experience John was referring to was varroa mites, an invasive arachnid from Asia that continues to wipe out hundreds of thousands of hives every year making it harder to meet the increased pollination demands of farmers. <laughs> no, there's nothing about this business that's normal anymore. In the old days, 4%, 4% was an average annual loss. Now John says many beekeepers regularly lose 30, 40, even 50% of their hives over winter. And on top of all that, using bees in commercial agriculture also exposes them to more pesticides and other chemicals, even from crops that bees don't pollinate. We now push these hives harder because they do an almond pollination and probably an apple pollination, or they are broken into three baby beehives and receive new queens, and then they go to North Dakota for the summer. Things are just so very different. You go to North Dakota, we're paving this country with corn and soybeans. According to a recent UN report, the volume of agriculture production dependent on pollinators has increased by 300% in the last 50 years. And nowhere is that more apparent than in the United States. It's inextricable from industrial ag, which the United States excels in. Not just excels, it defines industrial ag. This is Tammy Horn Potter. She's author of the book Bees in America. She also works as an apiarist for the state of Kentucky. And she says this entire pollination economy probably wouldn't have developed as it has were it not for California. That's right. Everyone talks about the almonds. But the Central Valley is really one of the most productive and diverse ag regions on Earth. Just thousands of acres that are devoted to monocultural crops. Strawberries, oranges, almonds, apples, uh, mustard, radishes. I mean, all of those crops have to have pollination. 
you know, this nation isn't able to feed the amount of people that it does without pollination. That's at the root of all of our ability to have monocultural orchards. You know, your pumpkins and your raspberries and, and blueberries and blackberries, you know, you don't get those massive tracts of production without pollination. So it's not even a question of good or bad, it has to be. With the creation of the interstate highway system in the 1950s and 60s, Tammy says it became much easier to move bees around. And because of the huge variety of crops grown in California, it became just the perfect place to experiment with pollination. But it's also created a whole set of problems, too. The real question is, is how do you have an industrial agricultural landscape while at the same time protecting your pollinators upon which the industrial agricultural landscape depends? And we have not been very good at answering that. So, Adam, let me just throw some numbers at you. Hit me. Of the 115 leading crop species worldwide, scientists say pollination is only essential for something like a third of that number. Still, within that third are many of the fruits and vegetables we need to make us healthy. But others say even without honeybees to pollinate those crops, it's not like they would vanish from store shelves completely. I don't know of anybody who's careful who says that European honeybees are crucial to the world's food supply. I've heard that, but I haven't seen anybody careful say that. Dan Sumner is a professor of agricultural and resource economics at UC Davis. That means I pay attention to almonds as well as lots of other industries. I've been paying attention to the honeybee industry for 25 years or so. Sumner doesn't deny the importance of pollinators broadly or even honeybees as they relate to certain specific crops. But in total, he says the numbers don't add up. The introduction of lots of papers about honeybees begin with bad economics. So an entomologist wants to say honeybees are important, and they quote some bit of bad economics saying, you know, $18 zillion worth of food depends on honeybees. One-third of the food in the grocery store. Yeah, for example. And, and I haven't ever seen that done carefully that gets anything close to that. Sumner says even without commercial pollination, we wouldn't have to switch to a diet of rice and corn. Because we'd still have native bees and other insects, birds, bats, many of which are actually better pollinators than bees. And yeah, some crops may be less available, but when it comes to commercial pollination, the U.S. is kind of an outlier, even for almonds. They don't hire pollination for almonds in Europe. They use a different variety of almonds. So could we grow European-style almonds here? Yeah, you don't get as big a yields, they'd be more expensive. So even for almonds, as a crop globally, are honeybees absolutely crucial? No, not really. It is true that for years and years, you know, decades and centuries, humans have gone by without commercial pollination. But uh, obviously a lot's changed since then. That's an understatement. Mace Vaughn co-directs the pollinator program at the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Over time, he says, wild and native bees that were once more than adequate for most farming have been pushed to the side. If you look back, you know, 40 years or, or 80 years or 100 years, you know, the footprint of agriculture was smaller 
And farmers were growing much more diverse systems. They had much more variety in the crops that they were growing. In recent years, Mace says many farms have become so efficient, fields literally go from road to road. And even worse for wild bees, instead of the cover crops farmers used to plant to replenish their soil in the off-season, most today have switched over to synthetic fertilizers. No plants means no flowers, which means no food for bees. In the ideal scenario, we would manage our farm landscapes so that farmers are able to make a living. That is critical. Um, But ideally, that there would be more diversity in the landscape in terms of plants and in terms of crops that farmers would feel supported and powered and ideally even excited to be creating areas of habitat around their farms. May says even just planting a small strip of wildflowers around the edge of fields or orchards can have a huge impact on native bees and decrease the need for commercial pollinators. Certain crops, let's say apples, for example, have a relatively low pollination need and probably could get the bulk of their pollination from wild bees so long as there is some sort of, you know, habitat where those bees could be nesting or finding additional forage outside of apple crop bloom. You know, and lots of other crops would be able to generate produce for sure. By planting things like pollinator hedgerows or floral buffer zones, whatever you want to call them, May says that wild bees can do a completely adequate job of pollinating crops, but... But, you know, it's hard to drop you know, 5 million orchard, blue orchard bees into an orchard when you need it. And there's, therein lies the, you know, one of the major benefits of honeybees. But even if we're successful at putting more bee habitat back into the agricultural landscape, Mace says managed pollinators like honeybees are simply too vital and important to think about abandoning altogether. But that doesn't mean that people aren't looking into alternative bees that could also be used in a commercial pollination setting. Yeah, so this is uh, what these horn-faced bees look like. So these are emergence boxes. This is Nikki Rothwell. She's the coordinator of the Northwest Michigan Horticultural Research Center and an extension specialist with Michigan State University. And for several years, she's been investigating whether a wild bee called Osmia lignaria, or the horn-faced bee, could pollinate orchard crops instead of honeybees. Like this tube right here would be filled with bees and see how it's capped at the end with mud? So there's about probably probably 16 little bees that are developing inside this tube. Nikki shows me a plastic box filled with about 100 paper tubes, each containing developing bees. These boxes are then put into cherry orchards where Nikki says they can enhance and complement the work done by honeybees. So their only purpose is for pollination. So they use these bees like in Japan a lot. They're the sole source of pollination in like Japan. And they've shown in Japan that they're 80% more effective than honeybees. Another native bee that's been considered as an alternative pollinator is the blue orchard bee Mace Vaughn was talking about earlier. Generally speaking, is there any reason why we would want different kinds of pollinators all working together or just different kinds of pollinators in general? Is it a safety issue? I think it's like insurance. 
that's what it reminds me of. So, you know, when I first started this project back in 2004, you know, there's a lot of bee guys that were kind of skeptical. They're like, hey, are you trying to replace our honeybees? And we're certainly not trying to do that. But let's say, you know, you're a guy that doesn't truck your bees around and you have really bad winter die off. So this might be a way to make sure that, you know, you get good pollination services. And again, where we're not trying to say you need to just go to native bees to pollinate. We need honeybees for sure. But in case your honeybee health isn't that good, you know, what are the other sources of pollination out there? When I spoke with Nikki last summer, the sound of cherry shakers like this one were a common feature of the landscape in Leelanau County, Michigan. Pollination is a crucial part of growing quality cherries. The more blossoms that get pollinated, the more cherries that will develop on the tree. This is a block of uh, dwarf uh, sweet cherries, and we have three varieties in here. Regina, which is we just finished harvesting. And then we have... This is Jim Bardenhagen. He's been a cherry farmer for more than 30 years. Jim's been using hornface bees in his orchards for several years now, and he says he thinks it helps produce a better crop. We use both, but hornface bees lie in little colder conditions than the honeybee. Honeybees got to have about 55 degrees before it starts working. And these work a little bit lower than that. And when we're in blossom time or bloom time, we always have a little bit of a challenge weather-wise to get warm weather. Uh, some crops like our balatons are real sensitive. The reginas here are real sensitive to having warm temperatures. When the bees go visit and spread the pollen on it, that that pollen can go down and fertilize the cherry. Huh. So how many horn-faced bees or blue orchard bees would it take to operate at commercial scale? Well, that's the thing. Since both of these species are solitary, meaning they don't live together in big colonies, just getting them out into the fields and the numbers you'd need would be a big challenge. So at least for now, it's much more likely alternative pollinators would augment rather than supplant honeybees. So we've just spent a lot of time talking about pollination, but geez, at the end of the day, is honey really that insignificant? I mean, the last time I checked, honey was still a thing that people eat. You know, I've got a guy, he's a beekeeper named Kirk Jones, and I asked him that exact question. Without the pollination side of it, we couldn't make it as a business in beekeeping. There's not enough income from the honey side, even with us further processing, and we not only make the honey, we market all our own honey. Kirk and his wife run Sleeping Bear Apiaries, a commercial pollination honey and mead brewery, which also happens to be in northern Michigan. Wow. So what he said is kind of amazing because according to the USDA, in 2017, Americans ate almost 600 million pounds of honey, a 65 percent increase from 2009. Even with that growth, honey is still kind of a sideshow compared to pollination. Well, it's not that honey isn't still a commodity that people want, but given the increased cost of operation to keep bees healthy and alive, it's just that you can't get by on honey alone. Pollination in the, um, the beekeeping side of our business is over half of our income stream. Uh, it's approaching about a million dollars in revenue before expenses. And it, it is quite costly to ship semi-trucks of bees. We sent 15 semi-loads of honeybees most years to California. You know, I don't think I've ever seen a semi-truck of bees going down the highway, but 
I'm going to keep my eye out from now on. So just to tie all of these strands back together a bit, it takes almost all of the commercial beehives we have in the country just to pollinate one crop. Almonds. Almonds. And because of all the new acreage being planted, we need a few hundred thousand new hives every year just to keep up. But it also takes a ton of know-how and capital investment to operate as a beekeeper. So just making more bees isn't necessarily as easy as it sounds. Aha! But didn't Dan Sumner say we could maybe get by without using bees as much as we've started to in recent years? Well, yeah, but let's say you're a farmer. How confident would you feel putting your entire livelihood in the hands of wild bees that may or may not be there? Or just hiring the hives you know can do the job. And oh, by the way, we still eat a ton of honey. That is true. Tupelo honey. Have you ever had that? So darn good. Anyway, so what do we have on tap for next week? Next week, we're going to take a look at bees as a symbol. A symbol of what? Environmental issues? You could say that. But also, do bees even need saving? Or more precisely, which bees need saving? The Business of Bees was produced by Adam Allington, Marissa Horn, and myself. Our editors on this episode were Melissa Robinson, Josh Block, and Greg Henderson. Our fact-checkers were Patricio Chile and Jordan Rubin. If you enjoy what you hear on this podcast, please tell a friend about us. Also, leave us a review in iTunes. It really helps new listeners discover the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.